Good morning. Uh, again, it is good to be together. It is good to be doing church with you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this meeting that we're having on Tuesday. Uh, this coming Tuesday at 7.30 at the church to discuss what uh, the opening up of the church looks like. We always knew that we were going to take a step in September to process these things. But based on some of the discussion that I've been having with people, some of the feedback that I've gotten, um, and that we as leadership have gotten, we figured we'd open up that conversation now already to discuss what August is going to look like for us. So um, looking forward to processing that prayerfully together with you on Tuesday. Excited for what comes out of that. Today, we are going to be continuing in this way on Facebook, of course, our Tough Questions series. And we are going to be looking at peacemaking or pacifism. Uh, the question as it was submitted reads like this. It says, what is peacemaking and how can we practice it today? So that's the question. I want to open up in prayer and then we're going to jump in. God, as we look to you to understand what it is that we are called to when it comes to peace, help us to put aside that which we've picked up from the world, that which we hold uh, because it's convenient or because it's comfortable or because it's what we have um, heard or learned uh, and be willing to exchange that for what it is that you are calling us to, whatever that looks like, that we would be faithful to you, faithful to your word, faithful to your spirit as we dig into questions like this. In your name. Amen. So what is peacemaking and how do we practice it today? Uh, there are a few things that I like about how this question was submitted. A few uh, of the yeah, assumptions or or the underlying sort of logic behind this question that I appreciate. So one of the things that I appreciate about this question is the use of the word peacemaking. Because so often when we think about or talk about peace, we use the word pacifism. And pacifism, it's a good word. Uh, it means essentially the same thing, but it's a bit of a loaded word. It, 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 it carries with it a lot of baggage. A lot of people think about pacifism and they're maybe thinking about different things. Different people have different ideas about what it means. And often pacifism is kind of interpreted to be what you might consider to be passiveism, that it's this sort of pulled back thing where you're not engaging uh, you're, you're in fact disengaging and you're being apathetic towards a situation that you're a pushover or a floor mat or that you're just sort of stepping out of the room when conflict occurs because you don't want to be involved. And, and that is not what we're called to as peacemakers or as pacifists. Peacemaking implies an active role. And so I like that. I like that it's an active word. And we're going to talk a bit more about the word peace as it's found in the Bible and kind of what it means because it is a big word. And the other thing that I like about this is the question, how should we practice it today? So not should we practice it today or is it worth practicing today? The implication of the question is, yes, peacemaking is something that we should be practicing today. And I think that no matter what your theology is on self-defense or joining armed forces or the death penalty or some of these things that come up as debates, the fact is, I think we can all agree that when we read scripture, we can see that we are called to peace. It's a fruit of the spirit. It's something that Jesus talks about and emphasizes and brings up over and over and over again. It's a characteristic of the kingdom of God. 
So how that piece looks when we live it out, what exactly the lines are, that's something that we can disagree on and, and process and, and certainly different churches have come to different conclusions on that. But as Christians, I think it's a non-negotiable that we are called to peace. And it's an interesting question to kind of dig into, especially considering our denominational history uh, and for many of us, our cultural history or our sort of ancestral heritage, right? For, for, for those of us who are Mennonites, our forefathers and mothers, uh, foreparents or ancestors, this is their uh, history. This is, this is the people who've come before us believe that this was a topic that was worth dying for. It was a part of what distinguished the Anabaptist people. And it was something that they were killed for um, and, and that they died for willingly. Peace, the total life of, of non-violence, was a core part of their beliefs. And it would have been unthinkable for them uh, to have a church member serving in the military, to be a part of the militia. That would have been completely unacceptable to them. Um, or, or using lethal force in any context, actually, to have a church, to have a church member who was a policeman not that police existed in the same way then that they do now, but but to have a, a church member in that sort of a role would have been unthinkable. Uh, anything that required the use of lethal force, force, even to be a judge, was something that was was completely unallowed because maybe you had to serve out a sentence that would involve death. And so this is what the original kind of Anabaptist confession had to say about peace. It said this, violence must not be used in any circumstance. The way of nonviolence is patterned after an example of Christ who never exhibited violence in the face of persecution or as a punishment for sin. A Christian should not pass judgment in worldly disputes. Their weapons are worldly, but the weapons of a Christian are spiritual. So that was, going back into the 1500s, the original Anabaptist confession of faith, their definition of what it meant to live a life of peace. And Menno Simons the uh, the man for whom Mennonites are named said this. He said, "We who were formerly no people at all, and knew of no peace, are now called to be a church of peace. True Christians do not know vengeance; they are the children of peace. Their hearts overflow with peace, their mouths speak with peace, and they walk in the way of peace." And keep in mind, of course, that these things were written by people who were killed for this. This was not a time of peace, an easy time to be alive, where they were kind of sitting back and just enjoying life and going, peace is easy. These are people, that initial confession was written by Michael Sattler, who was killed at a young age uh, for what he believed. And yet, today, I maybe should have sent out a poll before I preached this, but if I were to ask the question about whether we believe on an individual basis, whether it there are contexts in which it is good or appropriate for a Christian to join the military, I'm certain uh, that many in our church, maybe even a majority in our church, would say, yes, there are absolutely contexts in which I believe joining the military is a good and right and just and God-honoring thing to do. And certainly we have people in our church. Uh, Ryan Robert is a combat engineer who's very close to our church, who's in the armed forces. And if I asked who thought it would be appropriate for a Christian to serve as a police officer, recognizing, of course, that police officers may be called upon to use lethal force in certain situations, I imagine that it would be close to or at 100%. And certainly, once again, uh, we have current and former police officers, members of law enforcement, in our congregation. So many of us have difficulty with this idea of pacifism and what it means 
And certainly anyone who has had a conversation with people who are outside of a pacifist background or a pacifist tradition will have been met with everything from sort of skepticism and confusion through to outright anger. Um, often the response is, what right do we have to live in a country to reap the benefits of a hard-fought freedom that has been paid for with the lives of people who went to war, uh, who, who fought and killed and died uh, for our freedom? How do we reconcile that and how do we work with that? Or the, or the classic question, a more personal one, springs up and, and the hypothetical situation kind of arises, right? So you're saying that if you were at home and an armed gunman broke into your home to attack your family, if there was a killer on the loose, you would just stand back and do nothing? You would just let it all happen? So how do we answer these questions? And we're going to come back to that one uh, later. Again, I always feel like I have to throw in a bit of a disclaimer for these sermons. This is a gigantic topic. There are many specific questions that I know that you have on peace and probably Bible verses that spring to mind. And we just don't have time to cover all of these things in detail. We really just scratch the surface of it. There are tons of great resources out there to dig into this further. So if you want to know more, talk to me. The one that I'm going to recommend uh, here in this sermon is a book by a man named Preston Sprinkle called Fight. The book is Fight. Uh, by Preston Sprinkle. Uh, I had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Sprinkle a few years ago at a conference talk about nonviolence. He was talking about some of the content of this book and he did an amazing job and it really reinforced or helped me to kind of form um, a bit more structure around some of what I believe about peace and my own thoughts. The book does a great job and it's going to dig into a bunch of stuff that we just can't get into. It's going to dig into some of the differences between the Old and the New Testament. It's going to dig into the genocide of the Canaanites, which is a big sticking point for people, it's going to dig into Romans 13 and Revelation and some of these New Testament passages that seem to advocate or allow for war. Um, and he wrestles through these things in a really honest, sort of open way. It's an easy read. Recommend the book, Fight by Preston Sprinkle. But what I want to do today is to look at the biblical definitions or biblical understandings of violence and of peace to make sure that we are thinking about things, these things in a correct way, and then take a little bit of time to dig into the scripture that Leo read for us in Romans 12 to understand how these things apply to our lives today. So let's start with violence. It's a weird sentence to hear in a sermon, maybe, but let's start with violence. Uh, I'm going to set the stage here a little bit by walking through Israel's history during what is sometimes called the intertestamental period. It's this period of about 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. And uh, Israel... The Jewish people, of course, uh, have been captive uh, several times throughout their history, right? In Egypt, they were captive for a long period of time uh, until God rescued them. Uh, and that was, of course, formative to their understanding of who they were as God's people. And then more recently, they've been taken over by Babylon. And this remnant has returned to the promised land. But we see as they enter into this intertestamental period... This just continues over and over and over again. First, the Persians come and take over the land, and then Alexander the Great and the Greeks take over, and then the Persians come and take over. Um, and the Persians, it's especially bad, because under the Greeks, they were still allowed to worship. Under the Persians, their religion is outlawed. They're very, very oppressed. It's a hard time. And then there is this leader, Judas Maccabees. Uh, literally, that name means Judas the Hammer. This man who leads a revolution called the Maccabean Revolt, the Revolt of the Hammer. And, and in this revolt, Israel by force takes back their own land. They reestablish themselves there as sort of a sovereign nation. 
And there are a hundred years of kind of glory. It's a shining period in the midst of this time. But this period of peace and autonomy, it doesn't last long. Well, a hundred years. But in the context of everything, what happens is, is that Rome comes and takes over. And once again, just a few generations later, they find themselves with another foreign ruler in this place. And you have to understand that this isn't just inconvenient. Uh, what's happening here is that they are in this promised land, this land that God has covenantally promised to them. And so in their eyes to have another group in control, this isn't only an insult to them, it's an insult to God himself. It's a sign that things are fundamentally not as they should be, that spiritually things are off, that they're wrong. And so they are praying and hoping and believing that God is going to send another savior, that God will send a Messiah, another hammer to rescue them. Again, they are looking for a Judas Maccabees to rise up and deliver them. Uh, and there are groups of people that are that are working to do this. There are zealots in, in the uh, Jewish people, uh, groups of zealots that are constantly working to overthrow the Roman Empire. And they're staging these uprisings and they'll take over a town here and a town there. And typically they're caught and uh, they're crucified for what they're doing. Um, but these zealots are all over the place. In fact, Simon was a zealot. One of the disciples of Jesus came from that group. Uh, also, there are these Sicarii, these dagger men, they're called. They're assassins that would walk around in plain clothes in public places and they had knives on them. And what they would do is they would sneak up to a Roman soldier and just slip the knife in between the plates of armor in a weak spot and, and stab the soldier and then just kind of fade back into the crowd as the soldier bled out. And they would just walk around and find opportunities to do this. It was just these little things to keep Rome on their toes and to let Rome know that these, these Jews aren't as calm or complacent as you think. And that an uprising is coming. All while looking for the next hammer to break this rule, to, to rescue them from this place, to restore glory and honor to God by taking back this land. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus begins to make choices like he's gearing up for something big. He's talking about the kingdom of God and that kingdom word uh, will have been completely associated in their minds with an earthly kingdom kind of stacked up against the kingdom of Rome. And he's gathering these 12 disciples sort of symbolically representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's building this following and he doesn't take a wife and he doesn't start a family, which is sort of implying that he's gearing up for something a bit non-traditional, that he's looking at something bigger. He's not looking to settle down. And here is this revolutionary leader that's going to lead them into uh, battle, into an overtaking of the Roman Empire. But what happens is, is as Jesus begins to teach, he does exactly the opposite of what they would be expecting. In fact, he redefines violence. He reinterprets it to be a much bigger thing or a much more complex thing than they would have understood it to be previously. Jesus first teaches and begins... By saying, among the other Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And he says, in fact, if someone takes your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And then in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, he says, you have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that word is like, idiot, I think literally airhead, uh, is answerable to court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus steps into this culture that is just as much or maybe more than ours geared up for a belief in just 
violence in, in just wars, that violence or aggression for a good cause or the right reasons or holy reasons was correct and good and God-honoring. And here Jesus says, not only is violence wrong, not only is it wrong to murder, it's actually way bigger than that. Violence is about much more than just physically hurting someone. You can be violent with your words. You can be violent with your behaviors without ever touching someone. You can be violent in your own thoughts. And Jesus' first and longest and most straightforward teaching on the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, a huge percentage of it is taken to understanding how violence works towards others in all contexts of relationships and rethinking the definition of what it is. Violence is murder. No, it's more than that. Violence is already present in your words and your thoughts towards someone. An eye for an eye? No, even if it's fair, it's still violence. It's still sinful. Turn your cheek. And then there's some really cool stuff here baked into culture uh, that can teach us lessons about how to be nonviolent without being a pushover. There's some really, really interesting cultural things that are kind of hidden or baked into here. Um, extra layers that have some really cool lessons stuff I don't have time to get into today. If you're curious, ask me about it. But Jesus over and over again says, right, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, actually, you're called to love your enemy. It's crazy, but this is what I'm calling you to. This is what it looks like to be nonviolent in my kingdom. And over and over and over again, he takes the external truth, the external law that people were used to and says, use this to examine your own hearts and your own thoughts. Violence in Jesus's eyes is about much more than just the black and white of what you've done or following the law. And this will have been shocking to the people that Jesus was speaking to. But when we look at the biblical definition of peace, uh, it starts to make a lot of sense, I think, because peace is a much bigger word than we think about as well. Uh, for a bit of a change of pace, I've got a video here. So this is a video that I'm using with permission from the Bible Project. And they have a bit of a breakdown of what the biblical word for peace, uh, shalom, means and, and what it meant to the people of that time. So watch this together with me. I'll see you in a couple of minutes and we'll pick up from there. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. 
The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. All right, so peace, rather than a passive thing, becomes an active word. It becomes about restoration and about making whole and about living in community and harmony with each other. And that's why I like the term peacemaking better than pacifism. The idea of pacifism gets totally reframed uh, by, by the biblical definition of peace. It's not just about is it okay to own guns or is it okay to go to war or is it okay to be a police officer. Those aren't the most important questions anymore. Uh, we're going to have different opinions on those things. I kind of mentioned and I believe that we do have different opinions across our church. But the question of peacemaking isn't a question about what are the lines, where is the right and the wrong, where is the black and the white. The question is a question of our own hearts. Am I a peacemaker? In what ways is there violence in my life, in my actions, in my thoughts, in my heart that I need God to cleanse me of? It becomes a matter of taking a look at our own lives before going after the specks uh, in the eyes of others. And, and the passage that Leo read for us gives us a really beautiful picture of how we are called to live as bringers of shalom, of holistic, active peace. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So how often do I bless those that I disagree with? I'm called to as a peacemaker. Paul continues, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And then there's this interesting line in verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So it's interesting that Paul puts it this way. And I think that there's a really important lesson here. I'm always sensitive when we're talking about verses like this because I think 
that there are going to be situations in our lives where shalom, where whole, complete, restored relationship, peace just isn't possible. We live in a broken world. And, and some of these passages on peace and reconciliation have been used in very dangerous, irresponsible, uh, I'm going to say evil ways uh, over history as justification for uh, spouses to stay in abusive relationships or children to stay in dangerous, abusive situations or for people to continue to fight for uh, relationships where they're being abused or taken advantage of. And so it's important that Paul doesn't say, no matter what, no matter what the other person is doing, no matter what the situation is, you always have to live in complete peace and stay in a relationship. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace. There are situations where relationships are not going to be whole. There are situations in a broken world, in a sin-filled world, where it is not going to be possible to live in shalom with people and never feel guilt about having to leave or to step away from unhealthy or abusive situations, abusive relationships. But Paul also reminds us that when it doesn't work out, when we're unable to, it's not our job to take vengeance into our own hands. Vengeance is the Lord's, Paul reminds us. So instead, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Strange phrase. Hard to say exactly what it means. Uh, there's not total agreement. I, I heard it said that it's maybe about the shame or the embarrassment of seeing that this peaceful person is the bigger man, feeling small because you're being petty and they keep doing good things to you. Uh, another common interpretation is apparently the idea of coals or fire or that kind of burning heat of coals uh, culturally referred to uh, a change in heart or, or a change in disposition. So the idea might be that uh, by doing this, you're changing their heart. Uh, by, by showing love, you're changing the situation in that way. But Paul finishes by saying, do not be overcome by evil. Instead overcome evil with good. So, in closing, I want to go back to the hypothetical break and enter situation. This is something we've all heard, right? What if some gunman comes into your house to attack your wife or your child or your grandmother or, or you, and, and, and what if you or the people that you love were under mortal threat of danger from a crazed attacker? If he was going after someone you love in your house, what are you going to do? What would I do? I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I know I'd try and protect my family. I, I can imagine all sorts of decisions that I might make in that moment. But I heard the scenario reframed in a way that has been for me one of the most profound tools to reshape my thinking about violence and peace and radical peacemaking. And I think it's a really great sort of follow-up scenario to present to people if they're trying to walk down this path with us. As long as we're talking about hypothetical situations, how about this? It's Sunday afternoon. You're doing dishes after lunch. And your daughter is outside in the front yard playing. And you hear a commotion. And so you drop everything, you run to the front, you look out, and a car has pulled up in your driveway. And a man has gotten out and he's clearly agitated and he has a knife. And he's headed for your daughter. And let's say in this scenario that you have a weapon, that you have a loaded gun. 
and that you are ready to shoot when you realize that this man who is heading towards your daughter is in fact your son, your adult son, who is a schizophrenic um, and who apparently is off his meds and he's experiencing a psychotic break and he's hallucinating and he's not himself. And here he is in a mental health crisis headed towards your girl. What do you do in that situation? What do you do? And there's not an easy answer. But do you see how it changes the situation? Because you're going to do, my bet is, everything in your power to diffuse, to de-escalate, to work with that situation in a way that protects your daughter, but also spares your son. You're going to do everything that you possibly can in order to protect everybody there in that situation. Um, and you're suddenly going to get a lot more creative than, well, I just shoot the guy. Because that's not really an option anymore. Or if it is an option, man, it's a last resort. I and so as we think about what it means to be peacemakers, as we think about what it means to live in a world where we believe theologically that all are created in the image of God, that all have dignity, that all are loved by God as sons and daughters, this begins to help. This has helped me to shape the way that I think about conflict and the way that I think about violence because no matter what we do, this is the sort of tension that we live in. Is there ever a time to kill? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've talked about him before. He might be a familiar name to many of you. He was a pacifist, famous pacifist, theologian, living in Nazi Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a part of a plot, um, a failed one obviously, but a plot to assassinate Hitler. And that sounds like a contradiction. And it was a contradiction. Those two things don't really add up. But Bonhoeffer ended up being a part of this because he simply didn't know what else to do. He was in this situation where he knew that it was a sin. He felt that it was a sin to kill, that it was never right to kill. But he could think of no better option. And, and so this was the choice that he made to be a part of this. And it tore him up. Uh, but he made that choice. And what would you have done in his shoes? What would I have done in his shoes? What's the right answer? That's not something that I can answer for you today. And there are any number of scenarios that we can come up where the lines become blurry, where we can sort of think about scenarios where it just becomes almost impossible to answer. But as followers of God, we are called to be radical peacemakers, to pursue shalom in every situation, to as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone, to feed our enemies, to heap burning coals on their heads. And so when it comes to the question of should we pursue peace, the answer is a non-negotiable yes. And that answer should characterize us and define us. We should, as Menno Simon says, be children of peace, to have our hearts overflow, to have our mouths speak, to have our legs walk in the way of peace. More important than the big hypotheticals of how and where and when there might ever be something called a just war or if it's ever right to kill as the lesser of two evils, more important than that is the question of how are you living out peace in your life today? What are you doing right now to bring about peace? As you interact with the people in your life, with those above you, and especially with those below you, with those that you love and respect, and especially with those that you consider to be enemies, who you consider to be persecutors, what are you doing to bring about Shalom.
in those situations. Because in every situation we walk into in life, we have a choice. In every conversation, in every interaction, in business, in friendship, in family, in church, we can choose to be people who bring violence and discord and disunity, or we can choose to be people who actively seek to bring peace. Shalom. Paul David Tripp, an author, said that in a loud noise, outrage culture, a grace-filled, gentle answer becomes a radical, powerful thing. Uh, and I deeply believe that. I think it lines up right with what we've spoken about today. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to take time this week to process, to take or to create a slow moment in your day to take a breath, to read through this passage that we read through today in Romans Romans 12 verses 9 to 21, and to ask that question, how is it that I can be a peacemaker in my current situation? How is it that I can live those words out? How is it that I can find ways to inject grace and gentleness and humility and wholeness into my relationships? And as we walk together in that journey, as we live in Shalom, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, walks with us. Amen.